Thank you, Trio. Thank you, Miss Chris and the Redmonds. Also, thank you for that wonderful choir special earlier. We're going to dismiss our children right now. So all of our children that would be attending uh, our junior church, ages three to seven, will follow the Amandis to the back. And then after service, you can pick up your children at the back of the building, the Atha building next door. That's our building we affectionately call the Atha, named after William Atha, a preacher here long ago. And we'll be welcome, we'll be glad to welcome any of our guests over at the end of the service. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. And for our guests here, as we said earlier, we are honored to have you here today. Thank you for being a part of Canaan Baptist Church. And Pastor Ingram and his wife are away for a short sabbatical. And we'll be back really soon. And so... um, you hear good preaching when you come back. And uh, we do our best uh, in his absence. But I'm glad you're here to experience Canaan Baptist Church because it's the whole package that makes this place special. Uh, we, we're blessed to have a, a great preacher, a great pastor. Uh, but our church is uh, unique. And I'm speaking uh, because I'm here. I'm a member here. But our church is unique. And I'm glad for anyone that can be in a service, part of a service. I believe that when we meet, it's an opportunity for God to change a life. I, didn't, I don't know, I didn't know coming here what I know now as far as the things I've learned. Uh, studying the Bible, being a part of a church, being under pastor's leadership. There's just so much I didn't know. I'm glad I know what I know now. And so we were sitting around the table uh, with the our two summer staff interns and Brother Cherry and Brother Yusuf Baker and I, we were just talking about the past and where we were influenced in previous churches and pastors and not being critical in any stretch. Or We were just comparing and all of us agreed in that where we are now and what Canaan has done to us, what God has done in our lives individually because of Canaan Baptist Church Um, We just praise the Lord for that. The things we've learned, what we've experienced, what we've seen in your life, what God has done in our lives. And I did not know that what was really what a church is all about. Uh, I I mean, we were in great churches. We had good leaders and they did their very best to help us. But I just didn't understand not the machinery, just the spiritual aspect of why it's important for a believer to be in a church. I, I don't know it all. And I'm still learning, but where I am, I'm so thankful that I'm getting a taste of what it, what it really means. And for uh, me and my family, being a part of this church has helped us immensely. That's even say, that's, that's falling short of what I really want to say. Um, I don't know that I could put it into words. We wouldn't be who we are, or where we are spiritually, was it, if it were not for Canaan Baptist Church. Not the building and not the property, although it's a beautiful building, it's a beautiful property, but because of the people. And um, in men's prayer, many of my heroes, and I've probably said this already, are just the men who are ordinary people. They work an ordinary job. They have problems. They have struggles. And in spite of all that, they're just faithful to God because he's been faithful to them. And they're in their place. And they're not perfect and life's not perfect but we serve a perfect Savior. And it's a joy to be in his house and just spend time together. Well, if you found Isaiah uh, chapter 55, 
If you would, let's stand, please. I'm going to read the chapter, and uh, it is filled with familiar verses and wonderful verses. I don't know that we'll give every one of them their due time, but this context is Isaiah is preaching the word of God to the nation of Israel, and they have been, Israel disobeyed God and suffered consequences because of that. But we see God injecting hope into their life in the midst of the consequence, in the midst of the punishment. He's working a perfect work in their life because they're His people. And He loves them. And I believe this chapter, as well as many other chapters, is rich in a call to get God's people back to faith in Him and a call of repentance for lost people, for His people to repent and get back into God's way. And so let's read this together. This first word of the first verse is a little bit different. Most of the time we only hear that come out of uh, someone's mouth in December. But it's a word to get our attention. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Where do you spend money for that which is not bread? I'm sorry, wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. So this, this first verse is Isaiah. I can just picture Isaiah preaching, and we know that Isaiah was God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, so he's preaching the words of God. He's wanting to get the hearer's attention, and that's just a unique word. It kind of stood out to me there. I won't spend a lot of time on that, but he's, he's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, listen, listen to me. I want to get your attention. And notice he's calling to a a specific person. He's calling to a person that's thirsty. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. And if you could imagine if if 
uh, an occupying nation comes in and destroys everything that you have, no doubt your physical needs are going to be impacted. They're going to do everything they can to make life very difficult, impossible for you to live and survive. And so very well, there's a picture here of the physical thirst that a person would be experiencing. And in fact, if we could think about that for a minute, you know, it gets hot here in Georgia. And if you spend too much time out in the sun and you're not drinking the H2O, you're not hydrating, uh, you begin to get parched and thirsty. But you know, even more than that, an intense thirst where survival is critical can drive a person almost insane. I remember reading a book not long ago. It's called Mutiny on the Bounty. And Bounty was the name of a ship. And uh, it was the setting of this novel was back in the late 1700s. And I think there was a movie made about it. Read the book. It's far better than the movie. But there was a man on the ship who led a mutiny. Captain William Bly was the captain of Her Majesty's ship Bounty, and he was, he was mean. He was a mean rascal. And if you knew how they got their sailors back then, you would understand why a captain would probably be mean because he probably had a bunch of criminals on board. But they, they uh, had a mutiny. And so they sent the captain and the loyal crew with him. And so he is on his little vessel, the little, we would probably call it a dinghy or something like that, but it probably was bigger than that. But they sent him overboard. They didn't throw him in the water, but they just kind of shoved off from the ship. And he was stranded, stranded or away from the ship for about 47 days, but they only had about 18-day supply of food and water, and there was probably 50 men or so. And I thought it was unique. And not, as far as I know, this was fictitious. It was a historical setting, but probably didn't really happen. But I, I thought this was probably a real example was they got so thirsty that they wanted to drink the seawater. And the captain knew that if they drank the seawater, if it didn't kill them, it would drive them mad because it would further dehydrate. The bodies would begin to shut down. And I've thought about that since. There was a, another real incident. The USS Indianapolis was a naval vessel that carried one of the atomic bombs that um, it was either dropped on Hiroshima or, or uh, Nagasaki. But they, they were hit by a Japanese torpedo and those men were in the water for weeks and same thing happened. The thirst that they experienced was so, so intense. They were on the verge of dying without water. And I gave you those illustrations briefly to get us to understand the thirst that Isaiah is trying to describe, the one he's calling out to, because there's a deep spiritual thirst in God's people. And he's wanting to bring them to the place where they can be quenched. No doubt there were physical needs. And listen, anytime we are, physical needs are not dismissed. But our Father in Heaven knows all that we need. And He'll take care of our physical needs. He is far more interested and far more desiring to cure the spiritual needs in our soul. So this is a very specific invitation. Look who He calls to, the thirsty he says later, the hungry, um, those that are without money. And I think Isaiah is doing a great, uh, he's painting a great picture here with his words because I love the, the uh, analogy here. He says, you that thirsteth, come to the waters, he that hath no money. Hey, I can identify with, you probably can too, and feeling what it's like to have no money. He says, come, buy and eat. 
Come by wine and milk without money and without price. So if you go into a place of business or the marketplace and there's no need for money and there's no price tag on the items, what can you deduce that this place is for? What would we benefit from it? What is everything in there? There's a word we have for, for when something costs us nothing. What's that word? It's free. Yeah, it's free. Where you're, where you're going to get your needs met is free. It's not the literal carrying of cash. It's not the actual items that Isaiah is trying to uh, personify here. He's trying to ask, he's trying to get us to look at ourselves and say, do I qualify? Do I make it? I think we do. You know, many people, some may even be in here this morning. And in your heart and in your life, uh, there's no joy. Uh, there's, you're hungry. Uh, you may be asking there's got to be more to life than this. Maybe you're tired. Uh, you're working and trying to achieve the next level in life. You're trying to gain a status and you're just not making it. Isaiah was talking to people who literally, spiritually were destitute. It's interesting in verse 2 that after he is specific in his invitation, he gives really a serious challenge. He says, wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfieth not? And if you think about it, he was telling them, you don't need money. You, you don't need to have anything to come and, and have your desires met. But, the, but he's talking to the audience and saying, but why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Why do you work so hard and, and you're still lacking? You know, oftentimes we, we think we have a lot in and, in and of ourselves. And so with that, we are pursuing and working and, and laboring for fulfillment. And really, Isaiah is saying, you think you have something to spend, but you're toiling and you're laboring. And you're not laboring for that which is good and wholesome. You're laboring for that which is empty and vanity. You know, in verse 1, he talks about milk and wine and water and how they're free. Now, I don't know about you, but milk, wine, and water just wouldn't be on my grocery list if I were to go down to Publix right now. It's not something I got to keep on the shelf, but really they're symbolic. He's telling us that the milk representing nourishment, the wine representing joy and celebration, the water representing life, you can have all of that if you will come with nothing and find satisfaction. You know, oftentimes the things that we need, if we would part with self, we would have everything in our hands that we would need to receive from the Lord. This is what Isaiah is trying to preach to the people. He not only has a specific invitation to a specific person in a, in a serious challenge, uh, he also is giving us a specific result. Before I talk about the specific result, I want to just draw our attention to the verse where he talks about laboring for that which satisfieth not. It made me think of King Solomon. Uh, king Solomon was the wisest man on earth, the wisest king, and he, he was the richest. And I 
I just want to look at some scripture here just for a moment on Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The king says, I was great. I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Now, those are some pretty hefty words. He says about himself, I was great and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. This was my portion of all my labor. I looked on all my works my hands had wrought and the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. Back when I was a company commander, I used to have these, uh, well, it was required. We always had to have these, um, they called them liberty briefs. So Friday at quitting time or whenever, whatever day of the week we were stopping for an extended break, like a weekend, all the Marines would gather around in a circle. And so leadership, we'd have to explain to them, remind them of all the rules that were in place so that when they would go out and, and uh, spend their money and hopefully not get into trouble, uh, just, we, it's just something we had to do. And I would always take this time to try to give Bible wisdom. I didn't, I didn't always quote chapter and verse. It was, you know, I didn't worry about that. I just... I didn't want him to tune me out, but I remember using examples of Solomon a lot of times because these were young men, 19, 20 years old. They're getting paid 20, 30 plus thousand dollars a year. They've never been away from home and they have all of this freedom and we're not in a war zone. We're not, we're kind of in garrison life. It's kind of like, you know, they got to get up, get dressed, go to work every day, kind of a normal life. And they would, so imagine 19 years old, you don't have any bills and you got you're making 30K a year. That's, that's a lot of money for a 19-year-old kid. And, and so they're, they're, you can tell by the way they're dressing and by what they're doing, they're, they're just following culture. They're, just, they're, they're an example of, of culture and what they're doing. And I remember trying to, trying to explain to them, I said, hey, you know, Solomon, Solomon was the wealthiest man on this earth. He had it all. And when he would do everything he could to get his desire met, he had one summation of it all. It still left him empty. It still left him longing. It profited him nothing. And that's what Isaiah is trying to tell the people here that, listen, you're laboring and you're going to end up empty. But he tells them, if you listen to the Lord, incline your ear, come unto me and hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. He said, there's a specific result. If you'll listen to God, you will find life. Your soul shall live. And then he comes down to verse 6, and really there's a, a call to repentance to the people. There's a call there for them to turn back to God. There's a call of repentance. He says, Seek ye the Lord while ye may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Those, as well as they point a person to a direction, they also ask a question of, well, when is God not found and when is God not near? But he's asking them to repent. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Um, forsaking means leaving and deserting where you are. Um, returning in verse 7, returning into the Lord and he will have mercy upon you. There's an old preacher from back in the day, Arnold Prater. Uh, I don't know who Arnold Prater is, but he was a preacher. He used to tell the story of an old barber 
who enjoyed especially being vulgar whenever the preacher came into his shop. And this barber had a brush with death. And the barber turned to God in desperation and salvation and sensed that God had answered him. And afterward, he told preacher Prater, he said, oh, preacher, I've kicked him in the face every day of my life for 60 years. And for the first time in my life, I called his name and he came. Repentance. And then we have a timely response that seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. I think of Luke chapter 16, where we see Jesus telling the account of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. And how over time the, the, the beggar would be laying out in the street or, or along the property of the rich man. And he was, the rich man just lived his life day to day. He never, he never really paid the, the, the beggar any mind, never really paid him any attention, didn't, didn't try to meet his needs. And then one day they both die. And Jesus gives us a, a, a clear depiction of both of them in heaven. The, the beggar Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man is in hell in torments. And it's interesting that when the uh, rich man in hell tries to beg and ask for Lazarus to come and cool his tongue with just a little bit of water on his finger, Abraham makes a very, a very distinct uh, statement. He says, we can't go there and you can't come here. Between us is a great gulf fixed. You know, there is a time when God can't be found, when he is not here. And he also calls to faith the people of Israel. But more importantly than the call to repentance and the call to faith, uh, there's, a, there's a place where God is trying to, to get his people to come for satisfaction, to be completely satisfied and Give me one second here. I need to pull my notes. I've gotten them out of order, and now I'm all a um, little bit discombobulated here. Give me one second. I feel nervous now. Feel the heat. <laughs> there are three desires that I believe people, maybe even today, are battling with, dealing with. And they're desires that are common to most, most people. The first one that I believe we can find satisfaction in from God is approval. We seek approval from just about it. If we're not secure in God, we will, find, we will look for approval in just about every avenue that we can. If you're this morning... Uh, the Bible calls it the fear of man, that the fear of man bringeth a snare. Uh, we can be captured and captivated by a relationship, uh, by a person, and feel very insecure. And we look to other people for fulfillment in our own lives. Well, first we look inward. We look inward for fulfillment from us, from me. Can I... Measure? Do I measure up? Do I have what it takes? Do, do people love me? And we find out when we really are honest with ourselves, we fail our own selves. I mean, if there's anyone carrying an inventory of, of mistakes and sins and uh, uh, things that we wish we would have accomplished, 
It's us. Well, then we find there's no, there's no comfort in that. And so where else do I go for finding fulfillment and approval? And do I have what it takes? And we'll look to other people. I think you know where this is going. Other people, they fail us too. Sometimes people don't intentionally mean to hurt us or uh, do harm to us, but it can happen. And then in our pride, we don't want to turn to God because that would mean I need to humble myself and go to God for what I need. And there I'm left lacking with this arena in my life of needing approval. Another area where people long for is not only approval, but they long for love in a, in a relationship. And they'll seek out different kinds of relationships. You know, relationships that we have as Christians are very important. Our family is important. Our church family is important. Relationships with parents, relationships with friends. But, you know, we can oftentimes be captivated so much that they become so important that any disruption in those relationships cause us to fail and falter. And then thirdly, we may not know what this is called, but it's where we're endeavoring to shore up the weak areas of our life. We're endeavoring to right every wrong and try to make up for where we have failed and try to appease the people that we want to please or um, find favor with those who have even hurt us or maybe people we've hurt. We try to make up the difference. And can I just say that the only place where anyone can find wrongdoing, sin, mistakes overturned is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one where your sins will be unretrievably gone forever, forgotten. We remember them. And so as Isaiah's preaching to us today, because this, this event in Israel's history has passed, he's, he's telling them, in talking to them and preaching to them about being satisfied. He's saying, would you come and be satisfied with God and God alone? You qualify. You're thirsty. There's things in your life that you know need fulfilling. There are areas of your life and in my life where God needs to do the miracle work in fulfilling us and completing us from the inside out. And that starts with redemption. That starts with salvation. You can't begin really the road to recovery of the thirst, the hunger, um, the lack in our lives without first coming to Him. This, this chapter is a, yes, it's a call to repentance to God's people and there's specific there's specific. Uh, commandments and actions that he wants them to take. But in that is also a call to people who don't know the Lord, people who 
don't walk with him. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, let the wicked forsake his way. And then um, the unrighteous man, his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Well, for that, that word, the wicked forsake his way, that really points to someone who has never known God. He's wicked. He's evil. He's sin. Sin is his, uh, his nickname, if I could say it that way. He's asking him, would you forsake your way? That word forsake, as I mentioned earlier, it means to desert. So if you're here and, and, and wickedness is your label, God is saying, you need to desert this place like a deserter in the army. You know, those kind of guys are really, that's like the worst thing to be. But in this case, <laughs> desertion is good. You're deserting the wicked way and you're going over here to where God is. That's what God is asking the wicked man to do. Would you desert would you forsake your way? When you desert your position, when you desert your post, you have no intention of going back. That's why the guys desert in war. They don't, they don't plan on going back. They're leaving. That's why they get arrested and go into, the, into Leavenworth, wherever they send them these days. But in God's way, oh, would you, would you desert your wicked way? Would you leave where you are? And then he says, the unrighteous man, his thoughts, and let him return Unto the Lord. That's a man that knows the Lord and has chosen by his own volition to live his own way. He's probably saved, is saved, knows the Lord, but he's unrighteous because he's, as we studied this morning in Sunday school, he has decided to not make an adjustment that God has asked him to make. Y'all studied about adjustments this morning in Sunday school? Yeah, I did too, but my, the teen class. Um, I think adjustment's a good synonymous word, Brother Autry, is repentance. Because that's really what adjustment is. It's, it's thinking, looking, doing, going the wrong way. And God is urging you to do something drastically different than what you're thinking, doing, and going. Well, to me, that's repentance. Because one, one of the teens answered exactly the best answer. I said, okay, if you're not denying yourself and God is dealing with you about denying yourself, you only have two options. And if you're not denying yourself, then what's the other option? And the teen said, deny yourself. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's right. So that's repentance. Adjustments is repentance. It might be repentance from sin, yes. But it could be a repentance from, hey, this is the way God's telling me to go. That's what the adjustment is. Through this whole study of experiencing God, there's no doubt in my heart that God is dealing with you about something specific in your life, an adjustment that you need to make. And we are unrighteous when we're saying, no, sir, I don't want to make that step just yet. No, sir, that is way too hard. You don't know what that's going to cost me. And then Blackaby gives us a great example. Jesus Christ could not stay where he was in heaven with all of his glory to carry out the mission of salvation of sinful man, he had to make an adjustment. Amen. That's the unrighteous man right here. Let him return and notice the result. God will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Mm. 
Then he goes on to say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think we would all agree that that is a true statement. I mean, I know I'm reading from the Bible, and I know you'd say it was true, but when we think about it, we may not always live in the reality that God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours because we sometimes go our own way and think our own thoughts. That's why he, he tells him up here, he says, the unrighteous man needs to forsake his thoughts because he's not thinking right. We don't think right either. You know, the, if you could measure the difference between God's thoughts and our thoughts, if you could take a tape measure and measure that, it would be equal to the distance from earth all the way up to the throne of God. That's how different they are. God forgives completely. We get frustrated when we got to forgive two, three, four times. How many times do I have to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness? <laughs> Countless. But when someone hurts us, injures us, we want to be bitter. We want to point the finger, realizing there's three pointing back at us. Our God doesn't think that way. God judges sin, no doubt. You want to know how serious God deals with sin? You look at how he treated his son, Jesus Christ, who took the sin of all of mankind on him. That's how serious God treats sin, judges sin. He did not withhold his wrath upon his own beloved. Sin is serious. But God forgives. As the rain cometh down and snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. God, God's words bring life, abundant life. When he says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Why does God say those words? It's to give you abundant life. It's to pour out his blessings. He wants to, God wants to give his favor to his child. He, he wants those who are not his to come and experience the blessedness of his love and his care and his, his love and, and all that he is, he, he desires. God is not one who withholds. He's a giver. And he's, he's telling him, say, listen, the words that I speak, and again, this is Isaiah preaching, but it's the words of God coming out of Isaiah's mouth here for us today. And he's saying, I want, I want you to experience a life of abundance. And if you could just picture, I don't know how many of you like gardens, or I know we've got a lot of hunters and fishermen in here. And so whether it's a garden or it's is Ben McIntyre? He might be with the kids. Ben, it's the lake. There's, there's so many fish, you could walk across it. That's the kind of abundance that God wants to give in your life. If you're a, if you're a rose bush person, a flower person, it's, it's the rose bush that no matter how many deadheads you cut off, it just seems to spring more and more and more. God wants to give you 
more. In fact, he talks about that in verses 12 and 13 about the abundance instead of the briar, instead of the, uh, instead of the uh, thorn, the fir tree will come. Hey, we like fir trees here at Canaan. We put them all over the place at Christmas time. We got the balsam fir, the evergreen fir, the Christmas fir. We got all kinds of fir trees at Christmas. We love them here. And the briar shall not, shall not come up, but the myrtle tree will. He wants to bless abundantly. But for many, that, that's not, that won't happen until there is repentance, until there is redemption. It starts with the relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's, that's your starting point. It doesn't mean that your relationships and the, 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 the approval you're seeking, the, um, the desire you're seeking, the relationships you're seeking, it could be, it could be alcohol is your, is your go-to, your nicotine, your drugs. Um, you know, if nothing, nothing should 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 surprise a local New Testament Bible-believing church when they're getting lost people in here. Nothing in anyone's life should be a surprise to us because, listen, we're all broken. Only God can fix us. And I'm telling you, whatever it is that you're turning to, to, to satiate the longing in your heart, it's not about kicking the bottle. It's not about throwing it down. I mean, it is, but that's not where we start. That's called turning over a new leaf. That's called moral, being moral. And, and that's not a bad thing either, but it'll only last for so long. We're talking about being so satisfied that you don't want nothing else. I hear Pastor Ingram talk about more than his next meal, he wants God's hand on his life. Man, that's a man who will go hungry, will I'm not trying to uplift our pastor, but I want you to know the example. That's a man who will go hungry because he'd rather have God than food. Job said the same thing. I'm talking about a desire in your heart that is fulfilled. And you get there because you have a relationship with Christ. Listen, some of the, some of the hardest, uh, I don't want to say worst, it's not the word I'm looking for, but some of the most... Uh, some, some people that have the biggest hangups in life are people from, who grew up in Christian homes. And may I be reminded, you may have come from a good home, but God doesn't have any grandchildren. You must have a relationship with Christ. Your mama and dad may have been a very good, solid Christian person. And I'm thankful for what my mother did in my life in giving me the gospel at an early age. I grew up in a trailer park in Bunky, Louisiana. That just has redneck written all over it, right? We even had a gas station with Luigi in front of our trailer park. That's, <laughs> that's where I grew up. Used to play in the ditch when it would rain because would, that would be the pool. That was my pool. Um, the ditch would flood and we'd play in it. But my mother understood that I needed to make my own decision regarding Christ. And I have learned immensely more about that day I got saved than I did then. I didn't know anything then. I mean, I knew enough to make a decision to follow Christ. But if you're from a Christian home today, he has to be your savior. He can be the savior of your parents and your grandparents, but he must also be yours. If he's not yours, you're not his. You must be saved. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 13 says, which were born, 
not of blood. As I said, God doesn't have grandparents. Secondly, you and I can't perform enough good works on our own to receive Christ as our Savior. In John chapter 3, Jesus Christ sits down or has a, a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. You could almost say that if you were to watch a Pharisee live his life, he lived it unto perfection. I'm not talking about his heart, but I, we could, just from what we say of the Bible, I mean, they did everything to the T. It would probably be annoying if you were around them because they were so meticulous about their life. And Jesus even said, if you want to get into heaven, your perfection has to exceed that of the Pharisees. So even, not that Jesus was giving them props or anything, but he was using them as a benchmark to say, you got to be better than those guys. So he's telling Nicodemus this, and he says, Nicodemus, you with all of your religious trappings, you with all of your good works, you must be born again. You must be born again. It's not wrong to want to do good works. In fact, church, that ought to be what we're known for. But it's a result of what's happened. It's, it's a result of the good work on the inside that the good works flow to the outside. It's not a measure. Listen, your spirituality doesn't even hang on the amount of good works that you do if you are saved. Your spirituality, your spiritual coat rack is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes us spiritual, not, not the volume of good works we do. It ought to be good, but it's Him. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ, I almost want to tell you, just give up trying to do good works. It's not going to merit you anything. And another one is here in the South, and I'm from the South. I'm, I grew up in Louisiana, so I'm not, I know it's a, that's a big difference between Georgia, so I don't know if that's a good analogy there, because the Louisiana people, we're just weird. We're different. Um, you got rednecks and Cajuns together, and it's just, um, anyway, you could almost draw a line in the middle of Louisiana, and it's just culturally different, so I don't want to bring you down to our level. Um, but, <laughs> um, but people will, in fact, we were talking with someone not just recently and, and he said, I've always been a Christian. And I, I was, be, I, I probably regretted it later, but I wanted to say that's impossible. It's impossible. You can't have always been a Christian. It's a good thing to desire to go to heaven. In fact, I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, you don't hear people, it's rare you hear people say they want to go to hell. It's normal for people to want to say they go to heaven. I understand that. But you can't, just because you believe you want to go there, doesn't mean that's where you're going. A great desire to be in heaven doesn't get you there. We were listening to Rick Flanders preach, and it was an assignment that Pastor had us listen to. And Rick Flanders made this statement. I'm, I'm not going to say it exactly the way he did, but he, he gave the analogy of people who say statements such as, well, when I get to heaven, I just know God's going to let me in. As to think that I can live how I want to live, and then on the day I die, God's just going to let me into the pearly gates. If God, and I'm just, trying to quote Rick Flanders here. If God did not withhold judgment from his own son, who are you to think you escaped God's judgment? 
Jesus Christ has to be your Savior. And today's the day. The Bible says, while he may be found, while he is near. God is omnipotent. He has all power. God is omniscient. He does know everything. And God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But dear friend, if you die today without Christ and you go to hell, God is not there. Today is the day of salvation. Christian, may I urge you to seek complete satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Listen, we have, God created us with desires to be met. We ought to be fulfilled in relationships. And we ought to be wanting to have the smile of others. But there's no other smile that we ought to desire than the smile of God on our life. And when we are searching for fulfillment, our prayer ought to be, God, save me from myself. If, if you know the Lord, that would be a prayer. Save me from myself. I love to hear Miss Christie sing that song. But dear friend, if you don't know the Lord, you don't get to heaven because your parents were Christians. You don't get to heaven by a volume of good works. And you can't will yourself there no matter how bad you want to go. Humble yourself before God. Admit your sin deserves hell. You deserve hell. And cry out to him to save you. And he will. Let's stand together if we would, please.